Welcome to I Am Helen Keller's Daughter podcast. My name is Laura Newman, and I want to share my story about my mother's deafness, blindness, and dependency on prescription medication, her schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, and the resulting of my chronic trauma throughout my childhood and adulthood. I'm currently an unexplored speaker, eager to share my story of resilience with anyone who wants to listen and who will find meaning and learn from my life. My vision is to help listeners discover what it feels and looks like to live without sight, hearing, connection, and love. The unknown community of the deaf and blind world, children of deaf adults, and the association of cultural awareness that my parents were without, and us, that subsequently hurt two forthcoming generations. I will share all of my pain and everything I learned. I provide real life accounts in my healing. All right, everybody, welcome back to season two, episode five. Today's episode is going to be really special because I'm going to be connecting some of the bigger pieces in this last second season together and really highlighting the reason why I am talking about my domestic violence and how it relates to my mom and the whole purpose of my podcast of Helen Keller. And so what I want to do is I want to start pretty much um, in the era of the 1970s, which is when my mom was um, in her relationship with her first husband. And I talk about this era because not a lot of people realize that over the years, domestic violence laws have shifted um, from being not involved whatsoever into domestic disputes when calling upon the police or the criminal justice system to take active um action into where we are now in this in the stage of mandatory arrests for a domestic violence or domestic abuse call. And so the reason why I bring this up is because um, when I'm talking about my domestic abuse and things like that, um, it reminds me a lot of the reason why I started the podcast and how my healing works. Um, I think a lot of people in my life has, um, you know, the people that actually know me or the people that are listening to my podcast might really have a hard time understanding how I was able to reconcile with my parents and um, just exactly why they were raising us the way they did. And then what our relationships like looks like today. And our relationship today is amazing. It's beautiful. Um, You know, I do as much as I can for my parents and my parents really show up in my lives in more ways than one. And so of course the relationship with my mom's a little different because she can't see or hear me and her mental illness is pretty, Um, it's pretty bad. And not only that, but her like cognition has definitely declined in the last like 10 years. But, um, like I said, the reason why I talk about my domestic violence is because it really was a teacher in my life to show me, um, what my mom, what my mom's life looked like and how hard she had it compared to me in a sense. Um, especially when I start highlighting some of those things. So I'll highlight right away, um, some of the changes in the law and the way the criminal justice system helps people of domestic violence. Um, and so for my mom specifically and other women that had been abused during the 1970s and eighties, um, the police has had a more hands-off approach. In fact, they wouldn't even get involved. Um, they did have a call screening, um, a call screen where you would call in. And if you said that you had some kind of domestic violence or that you had been hit, um, the, the police department would place you on a, like a priority list of like the bottom so that other calls would be responded to first. And then your calls would responded to last. Um, another reason why officers didn't really get involved into domestic uh, disputes is because normally that officer would get hurt some way, somehow, because when they would show up, the couple would be fighting and things would be happening. 
Another reason why that there was some domestic violence changes for, um, in the laws is because in the beginning, an officer was given the discretion um, to be subjective about whether or not the present abuse on the woman via like marks or bruises or the way that she looked was severe enough to arrest the perpetrator. And so... One, there wasn't any training on whether or not um, the extent of the abuse that was visibly shown was significant enough. Not only that, but abuse also can be verbal and emotional. So there's no way to measure things like that. And so these officers weren't really giving them much training and there was no priority in helping these women. So a lot of women were just ending up um, having their backs, um, having the officers' backs turned on them. Um, where they're on their own. And so there are two cases that do highlight um, in this victimology book that I had read during my criminal justice um, studies at Platteville. And so there's two cases that I read about that really highlights the way that we um, have changed the page um, or we have changed, pivoted the way that we help women, although we're not perfect. We're actually far from perfect. So there's this case, it's called Thurman versus City of Torrington. Um, now this case is going to highlight how women used to call, uh, for help and they would call over and over and over and over. And because the hands-off approach had been utilized, um, that a lot of women ended up getting killed or really hurt or harmed. And so in this case, now this is a real case. Um, it's starting in October, 1892, continuing to June 18, or sorry, 1983, Tracy Thurman repeatedly contacted the Torrington police department in Connecticut begging for protection from her estranged husband, Buck. Tracy signed several sworn complaints against Buck, but however, the police department considered the incidents a family matter and did not respond to them in the same manner as they did to stranger assaults. Now, let's just hold the train right here for a second. Basically, what they're saying is the disputes between the husband and wife were more family problems, and so that was a hands-off approach. But of course, if it was a stranger that hit um, Tracy, then that would be seen as abuse. So there was like this like um, unspoken privilege, not privilege as into the way that we see privilege today, but this unspoken um, right to be able to abuse your wife and treat her in such a way because it was marriage problems or that was the way that we treated women or there was things that needed to be handled, blah, blah, blah. And so we didn't see the marriage um, separate from abuse. We just thought that that was all one piece. Anyhow, so on the day of the final beating, Buck stabbed Tracy repeatedly. A police officer arrived and asked Buck for the knife, but did not arrest or restrain him in any manner. Buck gave the officer the knife and then proceeded to stomp on Tracy's head in front of the officer. He then was, went inside the house, returned with their son, and cursed and kicked Tracy in the head. This series of blows left her partially paralyzed. Other officers arrived, and they did not arrest Buck until he tried to assault Tracy as they lay on the ambulance structure. Tracy filed a suit in federal court against the city of Torrington, its police department, and the 24 officers that had, she had contacted over the years about Buck's assaultive acts. She alleged that the police department and the officers had been negligent in responding to her and further that they had violated her constitutional rights to equal protection under the law by treating her differently than they would to, to other persons who were assaulted by strangers. The jury awarded Tracy $2.3 million in damages. Although the city's insurance company paid the judgment, it indicated that it might not pay for any future awards of any police departments that refused or failed to educate their officers about domestic violence. Now, this was a case that was um, in 1984. And so um, 
That just kind of highlights some of the ways that domestic violence was handled by the criminal justice system and by um, our very like police that we, you know, call on for protect and serve. And so when I think about that, I thought about my life quickly. Um, Like now there's mandatory arrest. And so this, now listen to this, this is a story about how mandatory arrest came around. Um, And so Mandatory arrests came around um, after there was an experiment. It was called the Minneapolis Domestic Violence Experiment. It was conducted in 1984. And so this experiment was to deal with the effect of arrest on those who would batter their spouses. So they were trying to figure out effective strategies um, on the way that arrest the arrests would have on the level of, of, of abuse, right? So there was three different ways that um, an officer that was called onto a domestic violence scene was told that they could handle um, the situation. And so there was the first way would be to arrest with one night incarcerated. So they had arrest the perpetrator and they would incarcerate them for a day. The second way was to send the offender away, which just pretty much meant not near the home, and if they weren't going to cooperate, you would arrest them. And the third one would be that the police officer themselves would give the couple some form of advice, including mediation. Now, this experiment utilized a lottery system of three possible choices, the ones that I just told you, and the the officer had no choice but to pick that lottery, which was, you know, given to them, and they would have to go and help um, the couple with these this possible chance of whatever one of three that they would they were given. Now, the officer had to cooperate. They had to go through with it. They couldn't utilize anything else unless, of course, somebody's life is in danger. Now, of course, we know that this is kind of unethical given the situation that um, – uh, domestic violence should be handled in a ways that are appropriate and some one way might not be appropriate, especially if somebody's severely getting beaten and they're getting beat up and you know that the person, the victim is in jeopardy or in a really unsafe place and giving them advice probably isn't the best way to handle the situation. So anyways, after doing this experiment, they learned a lot of things and there were some recommendations based off the results. And the first one was that the police were now they should be allowed to make arrest, warrantless arrest for misdemeanor spouse assaults. And so that was giving the, the police officers the, um, the capability to arrest somebody without a warrant. Um, the second suggestion was that mandatory arrest, which I talked about um, that is now true for today. And so this experiment made a huge change within the criminal criminal justice system. And prior to the experiment, only 10% of those police departments encouraged their officers to get involved. So prior to the experiment, it was 10% of police departments of in cities of populations of 100,000 people or more. After that, everything had changed. So when I think about that, um, the time that my mom was experiencing uh, her her domestic violence with her husband, I can't imagine the lack of help that her and and other victims have experienced. And so when you're calling on somebody to help you and they're not there and they're turning their cheek because they feel that this is a more family dispute and there should be hands off, um, that really leaves somebody very vulnerable. It also makes somebody more isolated and it also gives the perpetrator more power. Um, It's pretty scary. And so when I found out about all this stuff while I was studying, I really had... Um, a different understanding of what my mom's life was like when she was 
um, experiencing all that domestic violence. Another thing that came to mind also was the fact that she was deaf. And so there was a language barrier um, between her and the police officers that she did call on a few events. And how did they communicate with her? How were they able to understand what she was saying to them about what was going on? Did they write on piece, you know, paper? Did they really try to understand her? Um, as we all know, you know, the deaf community really in those days, we're not really given all of the opportunities that they're given today. And they're still not really giving a lot of opportunities today to be able to participate in the so- in our social world and participate in programs and things like that. Um, so it really made me think about what it's like to be deaf and blind. Um, and now she wasn't blind when she was married at that first with the first husband, but she had losing her eyesight. And so it really highlights the fact that when you're not an, an English speaker and that's not your native language, that there are some there's some limitations and there's definitely going to be um, some barriers to actually receiving the kind of help that you should. And that makes me sad because that's telling me that there's people that are in need of s- services such as police to um, to protect them from their abusers and that we're not really able to provide them with the proper help much less at the same time for her, um, she wasn't even given that kind of like opportunity to have that mandatory arrest and be able to flee from her abuser. So nobody really knew what was going inside their home. He had never been arrested where it would say, okay, now the family would say, this is serious. He was arrested. Something must be really going on and people would take more action in the family. And not only that, I don't know whether or not they really communicated with her. And so that teaches a lot of the listeners to me and myself at the time when I learned all this stuff and to my listeners, um, which is when you're, when you're not a part, if when you're a second, when English is your second language and it's not your dominant language, um, you can be set apart from other people and you can lose a lot of the services and the help that you need. Um, and it's still the same way it is today for my mom. Actually, today I was in a meeting with my mom and we were going over some of her like power of attorney with the healthcare system. And I had, a, you know, I was interpreting everything. Now, typically these days, it is against the law for for somebody like myself. I could voluntarily do it. But normally when you are, when you're going to a doctor visit or anything that's like dealing with the healthcare or mental illness, um, practitioners and psychologists, psychiatrists, etc. An interpreter needs to be present. Even if you were to show up in court, an interpreter needs to be present. When my dad was working um, at his job, whenever they would have team meetings or uh, big conferences, they had to have an interpreter because you can't expect somebody to just sit there and watch you know, and and have a doctor hope that um, the person's really understanding what they're saying. Anyways, so we were sitting at the table and my mom's going to get physical therapy because, you know, with her lack of being able to see over the years, she's lost a lot of strength in her legs because she's not walking a lot. And so she's in, you know, she's not doing the best as far as like physical strength, muscle mass. And, you know, she's kind of got like the forward head thing going on. And so, you know, I was like, let's get her on some physical therapy. And so they contacted somebody and they permitted her up front and said, after our first initial evaluation, we're not going to be able to bring in an interpreter. And so this team is like, well, we have the insurance, we'll just cover for you. And they're like, no, it's not going to work like that. And so I, you know, I talked to the social worker, of course, I'm upset. I'm like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, how are you going to, how are you going to help her? Um, Because I certainly am not going to come back here every Wednesday to help them interpret to my mom when that's their job. And I'm not interpreting for my mom anymore. I'm not her interpreter. I'm her daughter. 
I want to be there to support her and to encourage her and to help her feel vulnerable and for her to practice and to do things every other day. Like I'm there to to be her daughter. I'm not her interpreter. And so they're like, we're not really sure. And so I said, look, I said to the social worker, I said, we have been down this road. We have been trying to advocate for her for years. The first problem that we always come across is no, we're sorry, we can't get an interpreter for you. And so I am the one that's being relied on to show up. Um, there was a time when my mom fell down the stairs when they were living um, in a duplex that owned the house and they were renting out the upper and she was uh, on the lower and she had not, somebody had not locked the basement door and they, they we would lock it with a latch or like a belt I should say because there was this, the litter boxes were downstairs and the cats could just like kind of go through the crack of the door easily back and forth. So somebody had forgotten to lock it and she took a left turn and she literally found, she fell down, I think like 15 stairs and she broke the last stair and the stairs were made out of wood and she broke some of her ribs and she ended up in the hospital and she ended up needing um, a lot of care after that and things like that. And as soon as I said, I can't interpret anymore, I work full time and I'm also in school, they pulled out. And I'm not saying this, like this is, this is the truth. Like the, the, the level of care for the deaf community is so limited that it's, um, it's really hard in order to get them some kind of help. And it's, it's not only the deaf community, it's other languages, it's other, it's other, it's other cultures, it's other people that are not able to have their language interpreted to them at the doctor's office, um, at the courts, at school. I mean, I talked about how I had to interpret my own, like in elementary, I had to interpret my own, like how well I was doing in the school to my parents. I would have to interpret the doctor visits as a little kid to my parents. I mean, this has been going on for years. And although we've made a lot of changes as far as like um, ADA, the American Disabilities Act, um, making sure that we are being, you know, equality, equity, diversity, inclusion. We have made big strides, but today it's 2022 and we're still, me and my parents are still battling with them to get the actual services that they need with somebody that can presently communicate with them. You know, there are people that are trained in like the medical field. There are people that are trained and specialized in the court system and things like that. And that's because the the words, the acronyms, um, all of the, the vocabulary needs some clarification. Um, and so that's why they're so good at what they do. So anyways, long story short, I just realized that, you know, domestic violence um, for my mom had to be extremely hard. Not only was she just not getting the help that she needed, but she was limited on the people that could talk to her. And so um, when she called for help, I don't even know how she did it. Did she have a TTY? Did she, you know, how did, did she call her, go to her parents' house and then try to have them call? Like, how did she even communicate and with whom did she communicate with? Because there was her circle of friends that she went to school with, but after she left school, she lost a lot of her friends because they were no longer living together, right? Everybody went to the same school, but everybody wasn't from the same town. And so another thing that I think about is, you know, there's different methodologies of helping people with um, trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder, um, drug addiction, you know, all kinds of stuff, uh, PSTD, anxiety. And so there's different ways that we respond to, to therapy. Not everybody, not if it was, if, if I had a group of women together with me right now in the same room and we all had experienced domestic violence at one point in my life, we couldn't, I couldn't expect we could be a support group, but you couldn't expect one 
one way of helping, one way of therapy to help all of us in the same ways. We all, we all need things that are going to be more specific to who we are. We might need more of a like physical, like a, a grounding where we're more thinking about our mind to body connection. Some of us might need more of like the act, which is like acceptance commitment therapy, which just says that you need to accept your primary feelings. And then when you're being angry or fearful, you need to be able to look at those secondary feelings, which usually fearful is a primary feeling. Anger is a secondary feeling. Like you're angry, but you're usually angry because you're afraid of something. And accepting those and working through our feelings instead of trying to run from it or changing our minds. Like, why do I feel this way? Let me work through this. Let me heal it. Let me go through it and let me become stronger. So there's there are all these different kinds of methodologies of helping people. And so today I Googled, just for the sake of this podcast, um, therapists and counselors for the deaf community. There was a there was three of them. One was the Deaf and Blind Center. Now, this is in the state of Wisconsin. One was the Deaf and Blind Center. So that was, I went on there. Now, I know the Deaf and Blind Center very well. A- awesome organization. Very good at helping prepare somebody that's going to become blind. They show them how to do daily living. They show them how to use the cane. They show them how to do the Braille, read the Braille. And that's what my mom did. I mean, they had helped my mom significantly. But they don't have counseling. They have support groups. Now, support groups are different from counseling. It's where you come into a group and you guys all share the same circumstances or characteristics of the same thing. And then you talk about what's going on in your life, the things that you've been through. You know, you um, you navigate, you talk about grief, you vent, you support. I mean, this is a really good way to bring people all together that really understand it. But therapy is more of a one-on-one process where you're going through some different kinds of um, ideas and plans. And, um, basically you're, you're, you're going through the motions just like, uh, what is it called? EMDR. And so and now you're going to hear my papers cause I had to write down some of this stuff cause it's pretty heavy. Okay. EMDR basically is, um, is, is, it was created by a psychologist called Francine Sharplow. I hope I'm saying her name right. Um, it was developed Francine can be a guide too. It was developed um, as a new psychotherapy known as eye movement desensitization and reprocessing. So people suffering with anxiety, panic disorder, PSTD, or trauma. It's a way, basically what it is, this methodology is a way to get past your past. So you treat the trauma and other symptoms by reconnecting to the trauma in a safe way. And then you... um. You go through the images, the self-thoughts, and the body sensations, because remember, trauma shows up in our body in physical ways too, elevated heart rate, panic attacks, breathing, um, being really hot, feeling like you're going to die, things like that. And so all of these sensations are associated with the trauma. And so it allows a natural way of healing and processes towards like an adaptive resolution, which just pretty much means that those feelings and those memories are desensitized to a, a level that's more manageable. And so all of these like ways of helping people were not even at the time. I mean, this specific um, methodology I just talked about, the EMDR, EMDR, that wasn't created until 1990. So obviously we have come so far with everything. So that wasn't even offered to somebody like my mom back in the day. But when I looked up all of these like trainings, like the Deaf and Blind Center, I mean, nobody, every, everywhere I looked, it was either for the deaf or the hard of hearing. And then if it was for a deaf and blind person, it was a support group. So if we are in 
today, the world that we live in now, 2020, when we have far advanced our legislation and the way our workforce and the way that we treat people, right? Um, we now, you know, we're not going to do any more of the isms, the racism, sexism, ableism, and things like that. But yet, I still struggle to find an interpreter for my mom for physical therapy. And yet we can't even find somebody that really specializes in, in working with the deaf community and a person that has blindness. So when I talk about my domestic violence, I really want people to understand what it's like. Like I want to give you the, the play by play because it's scary. It's completely scary. Some of us are probably going to never meet anybody that has experienced domestic violence in their life and really under, not even understand what it feels like. I mean, to hear that somebody, you know, puts a person against the wall and then slams their face in it and then chokes them after they knocked out their teeth, that's pretty scary. But another reason why I talk about my domestic violence is because as I said in the beginning of the podcast is it was my teacher. It taught me that my mom had nothing and she had no support and she was without because she was deaf. Her language was a barrier to her receiving the services that she needed. And so when she showed up in my dad's life and she showed up as a mother, she was without, she was alone in all of her troubles. She was hurting. I mean, she was really hurting. And for me, if I would have never explored that, I don't know how much I, I could have forgiven my mom. I don't know how much I could have loved her again. And so I say that to encourage to people that are really hurt from their parents or their caregivers or their guardians. And so I, I encourage you to explore. I mean, I encourage you to explore what had happened to them, the way that they were raised, what what had they been through, their historical time period. Because I mean, the 60s, 70s, and 80s, think about all the things that have happened and how when your parents were in that time frame, or think about, I mean, let's go back to the 20s, 30s, and the 40s. I mean, look how much we have evolved and the way that they were raised, you know, during the war and, you know, the shift of the, the dad goes to work and the mom at home and things like that. I mean, when, when I look back, I'm like, no wonder my mom had such a hard time. She was without the things that she needed. She just was a hurting person that needed help. And now I understand why she went to prescriptions. And now I understand what it's like to be deaf and blind. And you're, you are limited with the people that you can communicate with. And you're lonely and you're isolated. And not only that, but the people that are helping you aren't really helping you because they're not finding the the value in having an interpreter because they just refuse to understand or they just won't go the extra mile because it costs too much to, to hire an interpreter. And so not only do I advocate for learning and healing and reckless re recon reconciliation with their parents, but I also advocate for the second English language speakers. I'm advocating for us because we have really have had a hard time ourselves being able to, you know, um, adapt to our worlds based off the fact that our our native parents and their language have been so dependent on us to help them. And of course, we're going to be here for them, but it really has put a crutch on us. And sometimes it, it overlaps. And I think that a part of my domestic violence overlapped because I was without a mom. I was without a caregiver because she was hurting. And without that caregiving that I had from my mom, I had developed like insecurity and I was just looking for love. And then I was also looking for shelter. And I was my mind was just in all the wrong places. So you can see how the intergenerational trauma repeats itself. And and this interracial this intergenerational trauma also manifested from the fact of a language barrier. And so think about all the people that are um as like English as their second language. And think about the limitations. Think about the the monk the monk culture. How how many times have you seen 
them in our hospitals and having an interpreter present for the, the one that can't speak in English, how are we helping them? How are we making sure that they have access to um, healthcare, mental health services? How are we making sure that they have the training and that they're attending colleges? Like where do, why are we not including everybody? And so this really opens your eyes in, in more, more ways than one. And so that's the reason why I'm sharing my story because there's so much to tell. There's so much to hear. And so, you know, you don't really get to hear about the stories of, you know, Helen Keller or the stories of somebody like my mom who's deaf and blind. And you also don't understand the impact. You don't get to hear the impact of being a daughter of somebody that lives in the historical time period of discrimination, oppression, and then also in the time period where we're all trying to be inclusive, but we're really not being inclusive at all. So with that being said, I'm really happy that everybody's listening to my podcast. I hope that um, I'm connecting some of the dots between me and my mother, and I hope that I'm really highlighting the significance of healing and education and the significance of understanding that people with um, English as their second language deserve so much more and um, everything else that you got out of it. So until next time, I finish this in 30 minutes. Good job. Pat in the back. I will see you next week, Wednesday for episode six. Take care. Goodbye.